Bible prophecy is often misunderstood and misapplied, which leaves many people confused or fearful. But when the Bible is studied in its proper context, prophecy becomes clear and understandable. There is no one we can trust more than Jesus, and His words will speak specifically to us as we study them in their simplicity. Welcome to Jesus on Prophecy. Well, we're so glad that you're here tonight for another uh, Jesus on Prophecy series. Uh, today we're going to be going over Jesus on the Antichrist, Jesus on Religious Tradition Part 2. So we'll go ahead and get into this, uh, and let's have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to guide our time together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day that we can all be here. We know that we all have busy lives, uh, things that... Uh, are on our schedules, but Lord, we want to ask for a blessing for those who've come today. We also want to pray that you'll please uh, bring those who are on their way safely so that uh, uh, we can also benefit from their fellowship as well. Uh, bless our time tonight, Lord, as we open your word. We ask for the Holy Spirit to guide us and to teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Jesus on the Antichrist. Here we go. For centuries, scientists believe that the earth was the stationary center of the universe and everything, including the sun and the stars, orbited around it. We thought we were the center of the universe. Until a free-thinking Polish man named Copernicus determined the fact that the earth itself was in motion and revolved around the sun. So he actually discovered that the sun was the center of the universe and we uh, were actually revolving around it. And so that debunked that theory. But we also see the story of the spider. Aristotle, the well-known philosopher, he classified the spider as an insect. And insects, it was known to have six legs. And for centuries, no one questioned the great Aristotle, because after all, he's Aristotle, right? And it was just commonly assumed that spiders were insects, and therefore had six legs. But it was John Baptiste Lamarck who presented the classification of the spider as an arachnid, having not six legs, but eight legs. And for all that time, people assumed that spider had six legs. Merely because something's believed for centuries does not make it true. So, could it be that a tradition like one of these long-held ideas has slipped into the Christian church? Is it possible that many have accepted falsehood in place of truth and very few people today have questioned it? Is it possible today, just as in Christ's time, that His church could be setting aside a commandment of God to follow a tradition of man instead? A tradition so old that almost no one knows how it started. A tradition nearly all Christians accept, thinking they are following God's law, when in fact, they're following something of completely human origin. That leads us to question number one for tonight. And we're going to take a look at our Bibles to find the answers. 
And so I, I invite you to join us as we look at, over these texts. The first question is, what is Satan's ultimate plan in the last days? And we see in the book of Revelation predicts that Satan would attempt to mislead the Christian church. And let's take a look at page 1182 in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Page 1182, Revelation 12, verse 9. What is Satan's ultimate plan in the last days? And we're going to find out in 11, uh, 1182, Revelation 12, verse 9. And uh, table 1 is empty, so we'll go to table 2. We'll have someone from table 2 read this text for us. The rest of us could, could follow along. Twelve verse nine. Yes, thank you. Page eleven eighty two for those still looking. So, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan. Who deceived the whole world? He was cast out to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we see here that what is the devil's ultimate plan? Satan's ultimate plan at the very end times. What is he going to do to the whole world? He's going to deceive the whole world, right? And that's what he's attempting to do. And we see that the devil is a deceiver. Satan is the one who is, his goal is to overthrow God's throne. Uh, And what is the foundation of any government? We talked about this before. The foundation for any government has to have what? Law, right? And so where does its authority lie? Where its ability to make laws is what that government is founded upon. So if your subjects refuse to follow your laws, they're refusing to be your subjects. So Satan attacked God's law. But right at the heart of God's law is the Sabbath. We see, we learned this yesterday. The seventh-day Sabbath that God instituted from the very beginning. So isn't it logical that Satan, the great deceiver, would attack the Creator by challenging the symbol of creation, which is the Sabbath? There are honest-hearted Christians who read the Ten Commandments written with God's own finger, and they see the Fourth Commandment, which says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8-10, through 10, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And people are confused. The church that they're attending keeps Sunday, the first day, not the seventh day, Sabbath. And we see that we learned last night that when we follow the example of Christ, we see that Christ himself kept the seventh day Sabbath on Luke chapter 4, verse 16. As his custom was, he was in the synagogue every Sabbath day, that text tells us. And we see that his disciples would also be keeping the Sabbath 40 years after the cross. So those people who say that the Sabbath was done away with after Jesus died... Are, miss, uh, are missing Matthew 24.20 that says that 40 years after the cross that they were expected to keep the Sabbath. We also learn that in Acts chapter 13, 42 through 44 and other verses like it, that the Apostle Paul taught a whole city 
to keep the seventh-day Sabbath, including the Gentiles. Not just the Jews, but both Jew and Gentile alike. And so we see that the Lord has a day. And we learned yesterday that the Lord's day is none other than the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is the Lord's day. And we have scriptural evidence for that in Luke 6, 5, Mark 2, 27 and 28, and Matthew 12, verse 8. The seventh day Sabbath is the Lord's day. And so, question number two, was the Sabbath ever changed? And if so, who changed it? Was the Sabbath ever changed? Okay. Well, some people are saying no. Some people are saying yes. Um, Well, let's take a look. Who changed the Bible's Sabbath? God didn't. Because we see that the Bible tells us in Malachi 3, verse 6, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Right? Who changed the Bible's Sabbath? Jesus certainly didn't. Because we see in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus says of Himself, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God did not change the Sabbath. Jesus would not change the Sabbath. So who changed the Bible's Sabbath? The disciples didn't. And the disciples could not change the Sabbath. And we also see emphatically in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. So very clearly we know that all of the above that we've mentioned so far, God, Jesus, the disciples, none of them changed the Sabbath day. There's no scriptural evidence that they said so. So the question then is, who did it? If God didn't change the Sabbath, if Jesus wouldn't change the Sabbath, if the disciples couldn't change the Sabbath, who did? And that takes us to the book of Revelation. Chapter 13, we read about a beast that rises up out of the sea. This chapter is where we read about the mark of the beast and the number 666. And that's going to be a study for another night. So please come because you definitely want to know about the mark of the beast and 666 and what that's about. But notice how the beast is described. This beast that comes up out of the sea. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. And so it's page 1183 in your Bibles. So let's turn there and read this and see what we can discover uh, found in Revelation 13, 1 and 2. And so it's page 1183, and I believe that Sal will read that for us, uh, table number four, once we all get there, page 1183, Revelation 13, 1 and 2. Who changed the Sabbath? And we're going to see how this is connected with this beast. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his horns ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name. Okay. Um, Can you read verse 2 as well, please? Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. All right. So very clearly we see this beast described as such. A lot of different parts to this beast. Have you noticed that? Feet of a bear, 
is a leopard-like beast. It has mouth of a lion. Um, it has ten horns, right? And it says, furthermore, that the, who gave him the power, throne, and great authority? The dragon. Who's a dragon? Satan. Very good. We're using the Bible to define our answers, right? So we see that Satan gives this beast power, its power, its throne, and great authority. So Satan imbues this power with great authority so that the whole world listens to it, declare its own laws in place of God's law, and the Sabbath becomes a particular object of attack. And so question number three What is the significance of this beast that comes out of the sea? And you'll notice the parts of this beast. It has feet of a bear. It's a leopard-like beast. It has mouth of a lion. And it has ten horns. Do we see anything similar to this anywhere else in the Bible? Of these descriptions of these animals? Yes, we do. We find it in Daniel chapter 7. Remember uh, Daniel chapter 7? Well, actually, we didn't go over that, but you remember Daniel chapter 2, which talks about this, and we'll talk about that later. But to understand this beast in Revelation 13, we have to go back to the book of Daniel, to the 7th chapter. And here we have the same imagery in Revelation 13. The lion, the bear, the leopard, and the dragon. And Daniel 7 gives us the key to unlock Revelation 13, and understand the whole subject of the mark of the beast and 666. So we read in Daniel chapter 7, verse 2. Let's take a look uh, here as we answer this question. What does a beast represent in Bible prophecy? Okay, so we're going to take a look at Daniel 7, verse 2 and 3, and we're going to go to page 864. What page did I say? 864 is Daniel 7, 2, and 3. So what does a beast represent in Bible prophecy? We're going to take a look here and allow the Bible to give us that definite answer. Okay? Daniel chapter 7, verse 2 and 3. What does a beast represent in Bible prophecy? And if we can have table number 7, someone to read from there. Okay, so, yeah, we're reading just two and three. Thank you. That was great. So we see that uh, the first four beasts came from the sea, and each are different from one another, right? 
So we see that four beasts rises up out of the sea, and notice this key to interpret Bible prophecy. These four beasts are what? We go to Daniel 7, jump to verse 17. And we'll have table number 8, read verse 17. What, are the, what is a beast represented in Bible prophecy? Let's have someone read that for us, please. Daniel 7, 17. Table number 8. Either Marshall, Sonia, or Lily, if one of you guys could read that for us, please. Daniel 7, 17. All right, thank you very much. So these great beasts, which are four, are what? There are four kings which arise out of the earth. So a beast in Bible prophecy represents what? Kings or kingdoms. Okay, so we're going to see that that's very much the case here. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. And we see in verse 23, can we have table number 9? Read that for us, please. Verse 23. Okay, very good. So we see that a beast represents what? King or kingdom. Okay, are we in agreement here? Yes, that's what the Bible says, right? Now we move on and we see that these four beasts are clearly four different kingdoms. And it's very interesting. If you were here from night number two, we talked about uh, the final super world power. Remember that? And we talked about Daniel chapter 2. And you remember in Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel gave that dream to Nebuchadnezzar, he described the different parts of that image. The head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. And actually, each of those medals represented the kingdoms that we see here also in Daniel 7. We see that the head of gold represents Babylon. Medo-Persia represents the silver. The bronze, it represents Greece. The legs of iron, Rome, the feet of iron and clay is divided Europe, right? So we see those kingdoms clearly illustrated in this image. But when you also look and compare this with Daniel 7, you see that the same kingdoms are depicted in these animals, in these beasts. We see that Babylon is represented as the lion, Medo-Persia is the bear, and the leopard is Greece and the dragon, or the dreadful beast is Rome, and divided Europe is the ten horns. So we see that there is a clear parallel here. It's not coincidence. What the Bible is doing, whenever we study the book of Daniel, whenever we study prophecy, what prophecy tends to do, it tends to repeat the same thing that it said before, but it adds more detail. Okay, so it repeats the same prophecy, but it adds more what? Detail. And so we're going to take a look at what details we can find in Daniel 7 that we couldn't find in Daniel 2. And this is where it gets very interesting. If you look at number 4, it says, What kingdom is the primary focus of this prophecy? There are how many kingdoms? Four. So which kingdom is the primary focus in Daniel 7? Well, let's take a look. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 4. It says, The first was like a what? A lion with eagle's wings. And I watched till its wings were plucked off. 
And it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given unto it. Now, we don't have time to go over this in detail, but we see that this kingdom this, this, that's described as a lion was none other than Babylon. In fact, when archaeologists were digging, digging in Iraq, where the site of ancient Babylon was... They found engravings on the walls of a lion with eagle's wings. It's very interesting. And so we see that in the ancient world, people knew that Babylon was represented as a lion, the king of beasts. And then we see that it had wings. And in the Bible, what do wings represent? Swiftness, quickness, right? So in the, in the manner which Babylon conquered, it was quick. It was rapid in its conquest. And we see that this kingdom, represented by the lion with eagle's wings, was none other than Babylon. But as this is mentioned, Babylon is not the focus. Because we see that another beast is mentioned right after this. We see in Daniel chapter 7, verse 5, and at page 864, we were, we we're at Daniel 7, I believe, so you can follow along. It says, And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said, to the, said, to, they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. And what does this beast represent? It's a kingdom that comes after Babylon. And so what kingdom came and conquered Babylon and rose into ascendancy after Babylon? It was Medo-Persia, that's right. Medo-Persia is this kingdom, as, and you know that Medo-Persia, the, the very name Medo-Persia, it's the Medes and the Persians that are combined together as one kingdom. Right? So it's like a coexisting kingdom. And so that's why it says the one kingdom was stronger than the other. Which is why it's saying that this, this uh, bear was like, on one, one side was higher than the other. Signifying that one part of this kingdom was stronger than the other. Right? And what did this beast have in its mouth? What does this bear have in its mouth? It had three ribs. Right? So what does that mean? You know, we see that these three ribs represent the three kingdoms that this uh, kingdom conquered, right? So we see that when Medo-Persia conquered the world, it first conquered Babylon, which we know, and then it went northward and it conquered Lydia, and then southward and it conquered Egypt. These three nations, Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt, represent the three ribs. And so you see how amazingly accurate the Bible is in regards to prophecy. How Medo-Persia actually ascended into prominence as a world power by conquering these nations. And very clearly history uh, testifies to this. But as awesome as that is, Medo-Persia is not the focus in Daniel 7. We see another beast. Daniel chapter 7, verse 6, page 864. After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. This beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So this is very weird. Here's a leopard-like beast with four wings and four heads. 
Now, when you think of a leopard, what do you think about? What's the, what's the strength of a leopard? It's speed, right? So a leopard is known for a speed. But we also see that, furthermore, uh, whereas the lion had two eagle's wings, this leopard has how many eagle's wings? Double the eagle's wings. Four, right? So what does that signify? If wings represent swiftness, what does this mean for the leopard? He is ultra swift, right? Because he's a leopard and he has four wings. So he could go even faster. And he, and he has four heads. We'll talk about the four heads later. But we see that this kingdom represents Greece. And what do you know about Greece? Who was the most prominent leader uh, in, in Greece? Alexander. Alexander the Great. He was just over 30 years of age when he conquered the entire then known world. Very young man. And he conquered the world so quickly, it's represented as, lion, uh, uh, as a leopard, I'm sorry, with wings. Not just wings, but four wings, right? And the question is now, why four heads? Why does a leopard have four heads? Well, notice, once again, how perfectly these beasts of Daniel line up with the four major world empires in history. When Alexander the Great died, he died at a very young age. He died at the age of 33, and uh, he drank himself to death, um, and that was unfortunate. And unlike most kingdoms, Alexander's son didn't take the throne. He didn't have any children. Uh, instead, when he died, his four generals had to now divvy up the kingdom of Greece among themselves, and each took a portion to rule over, right? And so that's why there's four heads representing the four generals who now are heading this vast empire. And now, we notice that Greece, however, was not the focus of Daniel 7. And we go to Daniel 7, verse 7. It says, After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceeding strong, it had huge iron teeth. It was devouring. It was breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. So this beast is different from all the other beasts. Right? And uh, Daniel cannot really identify this beast, uh, whereas he could identify the other ones, but he just says, this beast was a dreadful beast. That's all he could say. And so this beast is which kingdom? It's the kingdom of Rome. And so we see that Rome, uh, uh, the Iron Kingdom, is uh, the kingdom that takes place during the time of Christ. And we know that Rome ruled... In the world, in the days of Jesus, Christianity grew up in this Roman Empire. And the Bible describes the collapse of the Roman Empire clearly in the symbolism of the toes of the image and the horns of the fourth beast. How many toes are in the image in Daniel 2? Ten. How many horns does this dreadful beast have? Ten. It's the same parallel that we see here. The image of Daniel 2 had ten feet uh, I mean, not ten feet, <laughs> ten toes <laughs> of iron and clay representing Europe. The fourth beast here has ten horns. Rome was divided into ten main divisions. So Rome is this fourth beast. But this beast, as dreadful as it is, as, as um, 
as uh, impressionable that it was for Daniel, this fourth beast is not the primary focus of this prophecy. We see that during the time the barbarian tribes were overrunning Europe, religious apostasy would enter the church, and there would be a conflict over worship, and the Sabbath would be changed. How would this come about? Notice where the focus is clearly on. Are you ready? Daniel 7, verse 8. Let's have someone read this. Table number 10. Can we have someone from table number 10 read Daniel 7, verse 8? Thank you very much. So we see that Daniel, as he sees this dreadful beast, and as, as he's just like transfixed at this dreadful beast, he notices something about this beast. He noticed that it has ten horns, but among the ten horns, what comes up? A little horn. A little horn comes up among them. And so we see that this, we know, the ten horns represents what we know as divided Europe. And so this little horn, there's a power that arises from divided Europe. And so we see that this little horn plucks out three out of the ten. Right? So this little horn actually uproots or takes out, exterminates three out of the ten horns. Okay? And then what else does this little horn do? It says, then this horn, this little horn were eyes like the eyes of a man... And it had a mouth speaking pompous words. So the Bible says that this little horn rose, different from all the rest of the horns. And the Bible gives us evidence, clear evidence, to, to identify this power. And so we look at Daniel 7 verse 8. This little horn, it rose among the ten horns. So in other words, if the ten horns are the division of Rome, this little horn had to come up in it. We see it had to come up from Western Europe. We see, point number two, it would rise after the ten horns. So we see that it doesn't come up in the days of Babylon. It doesn't come up in the days of Medo-Persia. It doesn't come up in the days of Greece or Rome. It comes up after the fall of Rome. It's a power that rises out of Rome in the early centuries. And so we see the third point, it has eyes like a man. Whenever the Bible talks about eyes, eyes represents intelligence. But it is not God's wisdom that this little horn is, is depending upon, but it is man's wisdom. And so we see that a human religious system based on man's teachings is what characterizes this little horn. Right? So it has eyes like a man, a human religious system based on man's teachings. And we see number four, it is diverse or different from all the other rest of the horns. So all the horns represent political entities. This little horn is different. How is it different? 
It says in Daniel 7, verse 24, He shall be different from the first ones. How will, he, how will this little horn be different from all the other political powers out of the ten in, uh, in, the, in Western Europe? It says that it is not a political power primarily. It is a religious power. What kind of power? It's a religious power. In actuality, it's a religio-political power. It takes a guise of religion and political power as one. It becomes a religio-political power, this little horn. So question number five. What would this power do? Okay, Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. Table number 11. If we could have someone read that for us, please. Uh, page 865. What would this power do? Daniel 7, verse 25, page 865. Okay. Daniel 7, 25. What would this power do? As we're waiting for our reader. Okay, so it says that this little horn will do what? It will speak great words against the Most High. Who's the Most High? God, right? He's speaking against God. How will he speak against God? What greater words can he speak against the Most High than to do what? He thinks to change times and laws. So this religio-political power, this little horn, is characterized as one who's pompous, speaking pompous words against the Most High. He persecutes the, the saints, and he thinks to change times and laws. So this power, this little horn power, will attempt to change the very law of God. And so we see that this is obviously speaking about divine laws. It's not speaking about something insignificant like tax laws or political laws. We see in Daniel chapter 8, verse 12. Let's take a look at that. Daniel chapter 8, verse 12. What kind of laws is it, is it speaking against and changing? We go to Daniel 8, verse 12, page 866, and table number 12. If you could have someone read that for us, please. What is this little horn power changing? What laws? Okay. Daniel 8, verse 12, page 866. Okay. And, a host was given unto, and a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and, and cast down the truth to the ground, and practiced and prospered. Okay, so what does this little horn do? This little horn does what to the truth of God? It takes God's truth and it casts it to the ground, right? And so it's like totally disregarding, trampling upon the truth of God's word. And as he did this, what happened? This little horn prospered. Right? So something coming out of the old Roman Empire, a religious power would arise. It would be small at first, but it would become extremely powerful, and it would claim that it had the authority to change the very law of God. And so now this is where it gets very interesting. 
Question number six. How did the change from Sabbath to Sunday actually occur? Okay, this is the question that we really need to investigate tonight. How did the change from Sabbath to Sunday actually occur? What happened historically? Well, we see, friends, that the change from Sabbath to Sunday did not happen overnight. It didn't happen instantaneously. It occurred over a gradual period of time. The change of the Sabbath it resulted, in a variety of, it resulted in a variety of social and religious factors. And get this, Dr. John Aidey helps us to understand the roots of this change in his Bible encyclopedia on page 561. This is what he says. He says this. Sabbath. A Hebrew word signifying rest. Sunday. A name given by the heathens to the first day of the week because it was the day on which they worshipped the sun. That's why we call it Sunday. So he goes on to say that sun worship was common in Egypt, Babylon, Persia, and Rome. Isn't that interesting? That's most of the kingdoms that we just looked at here. What they had in common? They worshiped the sun. And in Revelation chapter 13, we see all those beasts amalgamated into one beast. And they had this one thing in common. They had sun worship as a common denominator across the board. And we see that when you come to the 4th century, the Roman emperor, Constantine, had a strong devotion to the worship of the sun, even putting the sun god on the coins that he minted He also had a big problem. Rome was falling apart and Constantine desired to unite his kingdom somehow. His kingdom was falling apart and in desperation he was trying to find a way to keep the kingdom together. And how could Constantine unite his empire? Then Constantine came up with an idea. A brilliant idea. Why not unite the empire around Sunday worship? And here's what the emperor's decree says in AD 321. He says, On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and the people residing in cities rest, and let all the shops be closed. So Constantine, what is he doing here? Constantine calls Sunday what? the venerable day of the sun. He declares that all workshops should be closed on that day. In an attempt to unite the empire, Constantine issues the first Sunday law. In the days of Constantine, he did something unthinkable. He united both church and state. You know, one of the things that makes America great is that we have a separation of what? Church and state. But we see here, Constantine actually did the opposite. He brought church and state together. Right? And so he did this. 
and church and state united in an attempt to Christianize the pagans and unite the empire. And we see that the Roman government and the Roman church was united. And here's an amazing statement that is really incredible. It's from March 1994 in the Catholic World, page 809. It says, The Son was a foremost god with heathendom. There is in truth something royal, kingly about the Son, making it a fit emblem of Jesus, the Son of Justice. Hence, the church in these countries would seem to have said, Keep that old pagan name. It shall remain consecrated, sanctified. And thus the pagan Sunday dedicated to Balder became the Christian Sunday sacred to Jesus. Do you see how it happened? Do you see how Sunday came into the church? Christians, to escape persecution, had for several hundred years been seeking to distinguish themselves from the Jews. Sunday gradually became emphasized because of Christ's resurrection. And gradually, church leaders, to make the pagan sun worshippers more comfortable, they started keeping Sunday in place of the Bible Sabbath. And Constantine wanted to unite his empire, and the Roman church leaders wanted to convert the pagans. And Sunday became the vehicle to accomplish both. So the biblical Sabbath was changed by the Roman church and state. God didn't change it. The disciples didn't change it. Jesus didn't change it. The Catholic Church, Council of Laodicea, records the first prohibition of keeping the Bible Sabbath. We see in that council in A.D. 325, the Roman, church, uh, the Roman Catholic bishops met there and look what happened. This is what they say. Christians shall not Judaize and be idle on Saturday, but the Lord's day they shall especially honor. And as being Christians shall, if possible, do no work on that day. If, however, they are found Judaizing, they shall be shut out from Christ. So we see, here is a church council that unites the Roman government under Constantine and says that we are shifting the authority of Sabbath, found in the Ten Commandments, to Sunday. This will unite the empire and distance us from the Jews. In so doing, however, they were unconsciously fulfilling Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7, verse 25, that this power would think to change times and laws. Rome would attempt to change God's law. God says, beware. And listen to this. In the Converse Catechism of Catholic Doctrine, a Roman Catholic instructional guide that clear, clearly and correctly says regarding the change of the Sabbath. It's very clear. They're not hiding it. But look, look at what they say. The Converse Catechism is a question-answer format. And this is what they give to converts who convert to Catholicism. Okay, it's talking about the Sabbath. The question is, which is the Sabbath day? Answer, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Wow. Okay. So they're admitting that Saturday is the Sabbath day. Very good. Right? But look at what it says next. Question. 
Why do we observe Sunday instead of the Sabbath? Answer, because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. So on what authority did they change the day from Saturday to Sunday? Was it from a biblical basis that they made that change? Did they say, we studied and scoured the Bible and we have come to this conclusion? Is that what they said? No. They said simply why? What was the reason for them changing it? They said, we transferred it because we have the authority as a Catholic church to do so. That's what they're saying. And we see in the Catholic Encyclopedia, Volume 4, page 153, it says, The church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath of the seventh day of the week to the first, made the third commandment refer to Sunday as the Lord's Day to be kept as the as kept holy as the Lord's Day. Wait a minute. Pause right there. It says the church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath to the seventh day of the week, made the third commandment refer to Sunday. Wait a minute. Which commandment is referring to the Sabbath? Fourth. But here they're saying it's the third. Why is that? You need to pay attention to that. Look at this. We see that the Roman power in the Middle Ages, they also changed God's law. Right? There's the Ten Commandments. What they did is they, took, they omitted the Second Commandment. You know what is the Second Commandment? That commandment is talking about the prohibition of image worship, idols. Right? They removed that commandment, commandment number two, and there's how many left now ten, of the Ten Commandments? Nine. So they have to make it ten. So what they do is they just uh, bump everything up. So the third commandment becomes the second commandment. The fourth commandment becomes the third and so on. Right? And they take the tenth commandment, which deals with what? Coveting. And they split that into two. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Now you have ten. And that's how they change God's law. And, you know, if you look at their catechism, it's very clearly outlined that they made that change, right? And Carl Keating, one of the foremost Catholic lay scholars, wrote a book as a challenge to Protestants, uh, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, page 38. This is what it says. Fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday. Yet there is no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sundays, The Jewish Sabbath, or a day of rest, was, of course, Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for the Christians in honor of the resurrection. So this Catholic author is reasoning with Protestants. He says that if you want to go by the Bible, you should keep the Bible Sabbath. If you don't want to go by the Bible, you should go back to the Catholic Church who freely claims the authority to change God's law as it sees fit. And this is a powerful argument that a prominent Catholic scholar in late 1988 has written. You know, on top of that, I have here a resource that is actually written by uh, the Catholic Mirror. Okay, this is actually a compilation. It's called Rome's Challenge. Why do Protestants keep Sunday? 
right? And so this is very interesting. What, when you read this, this Catholic is writing to the Protestants of the world and saying, hey, Protestants, because what does the word Protestant mean? You're protesting against the Catholic Church, right? So they're saying, hey, Protestants, are you truly Protestant? Because if you're truly Protestant and you go by everything that the Bible says that you should follow and you want to follow the Bible and the Bible only, why is it then that you're still keeping the day that we changed? We made that change from Saturday to Sunday. And if you're truly Protestant, you should be keeping the real Sabbath, not the day that we changed. It's very powerful writing. Like he makes a very strong point against the Protestants, saying, if you're truly Protestant, why aren't you keeping the Bible Sabbath? If you truly believe in sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible alone, why are you still going with our mark of authority, our change from Saturday to Sunday? And I have several of these available. If you want this, I can give this to you. I only have three. So first come, first serve. <laughs> at the end of the presentation. Very easy read, very, uh, very uh, light, but very power-packed. Uh, written by Catholic, Catholic uh, uh, leaders of the Catholic Church. Right? So number seven, based on the evidence, what is the primary issue for tonight based on this topic? You know, the issue is more than a matter of one day versus another. It's not, that's not the issue. The issue is, you have to ask yourself, what is your guide? Is it the Bible, and the Bible only, or is it tradition? You cannot have both. It's got to be one or the other. And the majority of people, unknowingly, are following tradition. Many people are following in line with what they commonly believe that everyone, the majority believes without really knowing or questioning why are they doing that. And is it in line with what Bible, the Bible tells us? Is it in line with Bible truth? And we see that the issue is, does any human church or human religious leader for whatever reason or motive, have the authority to change God's law that was written with His very finger on tables of stone? And so the issue is one of authority. Psalms 89 verse 30, God says, My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. When God says something, friends, it does not change. God does not say something. He says, oops, I take that back. I didn't mean to say that. I'm going to change my mind. God does not make that kind of mistake. When God says something, friends, it is as good as Stone, which is why he wrote it in stone. God says, my covenant I will break. The word I spoke on Mount Sinai, the word that I wrote with my own finger, I will not change. It is a matter of authority. So the real issue tonight that we need to ask ourselves is, who is your master? Is it Jesus or the leaders of a church? What is the foundation of your faith? 
Is it the Bible or is it what man says? And I see a hand right there. I'm going to get you later. Okay, just wait, wait a second. And we see in Matthew chapter 15, verse 9, it says, Jesus says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of who? Of men. So if we are not following God's commandments, but we're following the commandments of men, Jesus says that we are involved in vain worship. And friends, I don't want to be involved in vain worship. Do you? I want to truly worship God in true worship and in truth. Those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. That's what Jesus says. And the truth of God's word must be upheld. What is the basis of authority in spiritual matters? The church or God's will? To give up the Bible Sabbath given by God as a sign of His creative authority does matter, my friends. We see in Mark chapter 7, verse 8, it's, Jesus says, For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Let go of that tradition and hold on to the commandments of God. And in Matthew 15, 13, 15, 3, also goes further to say, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? We see, I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but I would much rather follow what God gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. I would much rather follow what God gave to Moses in the Ten Commandments. I'd much rather follow the example of Jesus Christ Himself. What about you? God says that the Sabbath is a great sign. It is a sign of our loyalty to Christ. It is a sign that we believe He created our world, that He created us. It is a sign that we want to follow all His Word. That's why in the last days of earth's history, in Revelation 14, 12, God's Word says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. In the last days of earth's history, God will have a group of people who love Jesus. They love Him so much that they are willing to obey Him even unto death. A love stronger than death is what these people will go through in earth's last final tribulation. And it's more than a matter of days. In the Garden of Eden, Satan said to Eve, what difference does it make, Eve? All the trees are all alike. Does it matter? Did God tell Eve, there's one particular tree I don't want you to touch? Was God being very specific? Yes. And Eve lost Eden because she bought that lie. And many Christians today are buying into a deception. People say, what difference does a day make? All days are alike. With God, all days are not alike. One day only was blessed by God, the seventh day. One day only was sanctified by God, the seventh day. And God rested on only one day, which is the Sabbath day. The issues that we're dealing with are issues of authority. The issues of obedience. And here is a verse... You know, some people may say, well, yeah, I, I keep all the commandments, but I don't have to keep Sabbath. I dictate which day I should worship. 
James 2, verse 10. What does James say? For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in how many points? In just one point, he's guilty of what? All. If we disregard even just one of God's commandments, we've disregarded all of them. Because it's all or nothing, you see. It's not 90% and I'm good. 90% and I'm in. It doesn't work that way. God wants the entire heart. He wants the entire commitment to follow His will in all matters. And so, like we talked about in night number three, God has endowed each and every one of us here, each and every one of the human beings here on planet Earth, with what's called the power of choice. That's a tremendous power that God has given us. We have the power to choose. And what is our choice? The Bible or tradition? Jesus or religious leaders? God's law versus man's dogmas? God's instruction or human teaching? God's way or man's way? God is speaking to us tonight. And the words of Joshua 24.15 is echoed tonight where it says, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Can you say tonight, friends, Yes, I choose Jesus. I choose His way. I choose to lovingly obey His law. Now the question is sometimes asked, Pastor, are you suggesting that everyone who keeps Sunday is lost? Let me make it plain. Everyone who keeps Sunday is not lost. There are many Sunday-keeping Christians who love Jesus Christ. Amen? And when they're living up to the... And they're, and they're living up to the light that they know... But when they learn more about the truth that God reveals to them, the question then is, are they willing to follow where God is trying to lead them to further truth? Because when you come face to face with Bible truth, and the Bible truth comes face to face with you, you have a choice to make, my friends, from that moment on. The choice to shun that light that God has revealed to you, or you, by God's grace, say, Lord, if your word says it, I will adhere to it, I will follow it, because I love you, and I will follow you wherever you lead. And friends, that's what God is looking for. God is looking over the world. Tens of thousands of people are hearing God's call and stepping out for His truth. And would you like to say tonight, Yes, Lord, You have revealed Your truth. And like Joshua, I too choose to follow You. I choose to follow Jesus today. And Jesus is calling you today. He is calling you to step out of the crowd. Step out of the majority rules mindset. He's calling you to follow Him. He's calling you to obey Him. He's appealing you to accept His Word. And His Word alone is the basis of your faith. Or it should be. And friends, I want to ask my wife to sing a special song. As we... 
prepare our hearts to make a decision tonight. You know, it's very important to realize the power of choice that God has endowed to each and every one of us. And tonight, after hearing this truth, God wants you to make a choice. A choice for Him. And so let's take a moment and listen to the words of this song. And then we will go into the decision card after that. I'd like to ask the table leaders in every designated table if you can pass out the decision cards for tonight. And I know that some tables do not have a table leader, but Sal will get a decision card for you. And tonight, when you receive that card, the very first thing I'd like you to do is write your name on that card, please. And there's some writing instruments on your table. I'd like to write I'd like to have each and every person write your name on this card. We want to make decisions tonight. And by God's grace, we'll make decisions tonight that will glorify Him. Amen? And so I want you to take this card and raise your hand if you do not have a card. Okay? If you do not have a card, raise your hands. Okay? Looks like everyone has a card. Write your name on this card. And I'm going to go through five points tonight. You know that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to us through His Word. And we're going to go ahead and respond to what the Holy Spirit has revealed to us. Under your name, number one, it says, I love Jesus and want to follow Him completely. If that is your desire, and you say, Lord, just like that song says, I will follow thee, my Savior, wheresoever thy life may be, I will follow you. If that is your desire, you could put a check mark on number one. Number two, it is clear from the Bible that the seventh day of the week, Saturday, is the true Bible Sabbath and is a sign of His power as Creator and Redeemer. Based on tonight's study, we learned it from the Bible. The Bible itself gave us the answers. It wasn't me giving the answers. It was the Bible. And you see very clearly that the Bible, this is a biblical teaching about the Sabbath as the true Bible Sabbath. 
that has been lar largely forgotten. And if you are in agreement with that, and that is clear, put a check mark there. In, po in point number three, in loving response to Jesus, I desire to keep all of God's commandments by His grace through faith, including the fourth, to keep the Sabbath holy. Friends, and that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's about our love for Jesus. It's our love for Him, and we respond to what He's done for us, and because of that, we knowingly, out of our love for Him, recall that text, John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. That includes the Sabbath, doesn't it? And God is calling us to keep that Sabbath commandment as well as the other nine tonight. And if you are willing to say, Lord, I desire to keep all your commandments by your grace and by my faith in you, you can put your check mark there. Because it's not you doing it, but it's you yielding to God's grace, which empowers you to do it. You're just saying, Lord, I give you the permission to do that. Make it real in my life. If that's what you desire, put a check mark there. Point number four. I would like more study material on the Sabbath. Maybe this is the first time you heard something like this tonight. It's overwhelming. It's, and the wheels are turning. And you're, you're trying to marinate this and try to allow this to sink in. And you just need more time to mull this over and study this more in depth. Check, put a check mark there. And we will do what we can to provide materials for you. And the final decision. I have a Bible question regarding the Sabbath. Put a check mark there and write your question on the back of the card, if you would, please. And I'll be happy to follow up with you uh, with that. As you make these decisions, I want to ask that nobody talks during this time. The only voice we want to hear is the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts as we listen to the second stanza of this song. How many of you here tonight would want to follow Jesus wherever he leads? Is that your desire tonight? If so, would you raise your hand and say, Lord, just like the song says, I will follow thee wherever you go. And friends, praise the Lord that you're raising your hands tonight because the book of Revelation prophesies that there's a group of people 
in the last days that are characterized as those who follow the Lamb whithersoever He goes. And friends, we want to be part of that group, don't we? We want to be part of the people that are described as such who will stand with Him on Mount Zion and follow Him wherever He goes. But it starts tonight. It starts with a decision tonight. And from that moment on, we don't turn back. We follow Him all the way. Amen? Let's pray as we close our time together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You so much that You are our God, our Creator, our Savior, and our Redeemer. And Lord, we pray that You'll please be with the decisions that were made tonight. We also pray that the Holy Spirit will continue to impress upon our hearts the truth of Your Word so that we can yield to Your empowering grace to be able to keep Your commandments, not to be saved, but because we are saved and because of our love response for You and for what You've done. And so, Lord, I pray that You please be with each and every precious soul here tonight. I pray that You'll please make the truth so clear and may the light of truth shine in their minds and in their hearts and may they see the beautiful picture of Jesus so that their hearts are warmly touched and they do not want to turn anywhere to the left or to the right but they just want to come to you and I pray this in the precious name of Jesus Amen